Good evening. Well, I'm so glad to see each one of you here tonight. Um, I've never been under curfew in my life other than my parents. Um, so this is a new experience for me. My understanding is it's been 21 years since something like this happened here before. So my goal is to be done by at least 8 o'clock, if not a little bit before then, so that we can all get home safely and efficiently. And I'm glad that so many of you have come out this evening under the circumstances. Um, let, let's go ahead and bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your blessings and bringing us here. I just pray for a special blessing now as we go through the first part of Daniel chapter 11. May it not just be a history lesson, but may we see just how soon your coming is. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we get into Daniel 11, a verse that comes to mind based on the circumstances that are happening in this country and around the world is Romans chapter 13, verse 11. And Romans chapter 13, verse 11 fits very well with the message we are going to talk about in Daniel 11 over two sessions. And in Romans 13, 11 we read, and that knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Do you believe it's time to wake up out of sleep? You know, the parable of the ten virgins describing God's people just before Jesus comes shows that all the virgins were sleeping. So I can't say, and you can't say, wait, that doesn't apply to me. I'm wide awake. No, we have all been sleeping. But the Lord uses things like what's happening right now to get us to wake up, to realize that Jesus is coming soon. And so in that thought, with that thought, let's move into Daniel chapter 11. And what we are going to do, we are going to go up through the first 40 verses in the next few minutes, and we are going to see just how accurate this prophecy has been down to the very time we are now. And it's fascinating, if you look at Daniel 2, 7, 8, and now 11, you get further information each time, which gives you a better understanding of where we are prophetically. So, first of all, is Daniel 11 important? Well, if you were here last time, you saw when we studied Daniel chapter 10 in the last part of our presentation, we saw that Daniel prayed for three full weeks. Unbeknownst to him during that entire time, Gabriel was in conflict with Satan over the mind of the king of Persia. And after three full weeks, Jesus, or Michael, came and settled the conflict so that this last vision in the book of Daniel could be revealed. So in other words, there was a great controversy struggle between Christ and Satan in order for this vision to be revealed. So therefore, it must be very important. Amen? And that's just a brief summary of what we talked about last time. So on that basis, this is an outline of where we are headed. Daniel 2 and 7, you have the exact same sequence of kingdoms 
But then in Daniel 8, Babylon is missing, and we saw that Babylon was missing because in chapter 8, the 2300-day prophecy begins in Medo-Persia. And then again, when we come to Daniel chapter 11, Babylon is missing in the sequence of kingdoms, but all the other kingdoms are still there. Medo-Persia, Greece, pagan Rome, and papal Rome. And this time, instead of using beasts or metals to describe these kingdoms, Literal terms are used. The king of the north and the king of the south. Now, how many of you have studied this history of the king of the north and the king of the south? Okay, a, a couple of you. We're going to make it as simple as we can in the time that we have. So, let's move ahead. Let's, what I'm going to do briefly is just look at the highlights of the first 30 verses just so you can see the flow of history in Daniel chapter 11. Now if you look at verse 1 for example, in order to, to stand this, understand this you have to go back to the end of Daniel chapter 10 where Gabriel tells Daniel in verses 20 and 21 that he is going to contend with the prince of Persia or the king of Persia and then in chapter 11 verse 1 he refers to the past. Because Darius the Mede was the first king of the kingdom of Medo-Persia. He goes back to the past and he says, I stood to confirm and strengthen Darius the Mede. And then in verse 2 he says, Now, based on the present time from this point forward, which was the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, there will stand up three kings in Persia, and then after that the fourth shall be richer. And then verse 3 he talks about a mighty kingdom. So the first two verses talk about the kings who would come after Cyrus and Xerxes was the fourth king who was the richest of all of them. By the time we get to verse 3, we see a mighty king. This is referring to Alexander the Great. And in verse 4, we see the division of Greece into four parts. Verse 4 it says, And when he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken and shall be divided toward the four winds of heaven. So, so far, we're following the very same sequence that we did in Daniel 2, 7, and 8. Can you see that? So... Don't let Daniel 11 scare you too much. When you study it, you realize it's taking you through the same sequence of kingdoms that we saw in Daniel 2, 7, and 8. It's just providing additional information. Now, what we then see, when Greece was divided into four sections, you had the four generals of Alexander, Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. But what ended up happening, and if you look here on this map, Seleucus eventually conquered Lysimachus and Cassander, and so he had the entire northern territory of Greece, and then Ptolemy was down in Egypt, he had the southern territory, so Seleucus became the king of the north, and Ptolemy of Egypt became the king of the south. So that's how we understand the king of the north and the king of the south. That's how the, the narrative will follow as we continue. And this is just a bigger map showing the same thing. So what we're going to do now in verses 5 through 15, and I'm not going to read all the verses because we don't have time. 
I'll simply say that if you read verses 5 through 15, you see that there is constant battles or warfare between the king of the north and the king of the south. The one story I will mention to you to show you just how true this prophecy is, is that after all these battles, after many years, over hundreds of years, in verse 6 it says, And in the end of years they shall join themselves together, for the king's daughter of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. So the king of the north and the king of the south, Seleucus and Ptolemy, their ancestors said, you know what, why don't we just make an alliance instead of fighting each other all the time? So the king of the south said, hey, I will send my daughter Berenice, and she will come and marry the king of the north, Antiochus, or one of the, from either Antiochus or Seleucus. And she comes up and she marries the king of the north, and the problem was the king of the north was already married to a woman, Laodice, and he already had a child, and that child was supposed to be the successor to the throne. But then now he's married to this new woman, and then he has a child with her. And so it seems like everything's going to come together and that the king of the north and the king of the south will be united. But if you continue on in verse 6, it says, But she shall not retain the power of the arm, neither shall he stand nor his arm, but she shall be given up, and they that brought her, and he that begat her, and he that strengtheneth her in these times. Here's what happened. After about two years, the king of the north got tired of his new wife. So he said, I think I'll take my first wife back. So he puts away Berenice and brings back his original wife, Laodice. But Laodice obviously didn't trust him. That's a simple lesson here. If your husband's not faithful to you, it's hard to trust him. You can't trust him. So Laodice said, you know what? He's probably going to go back to that woman again if I don't take action. And I want to make sure that my son rises to power. So she had, she conspired together with others and they put the king of the north to death. And they put her rival Berenice, who was the daughter of the king of the south to death, and her child and all the maids from Egypt that had come with her in perfect fulfillment of what the Bible said hundreds of years before it happened. The reason I tell that story is that if the Bible was that precise and accurate about such a story, we can be sure that when we get down to the end of Daniel 11, it's, just, it's going to be just as precise and just as accurate. Does that make sense? So... That's fascinating to me when I see that story. So again, verses 5 through 15, you have many battles. And when we see the king of the north, they were either named Seleucus or Antiochus. And then in the south, they were always named Ptolemy. Now, moving on ahead, in verse 16, Pompey of Rome defeats Antiochus the 13th and becomes the king of the north in 65 BC. So pagan Rome eventually replaces the northern division of Greece as the king of the north because they overtook that division of Greece. And then when you continue on down in verse 16, it talks about how the king of the north would enter into the glorious land. This refers to the land of Judea, which was the land of, of Daniel's forefathers and the glorious land refers to where God's people lived. 
continuing on, then when you come down, now we're talking about the king of the north, in verses 18 and 19, it talks about the death of Julius Caesar. It talks about how he was taking over the whole world. And in verse 19, it says, when he turns towards his own land, he shall stumble and fall. That refers to when the Roman Senate unexpectedly murdered Julius Caesar. And he was at the peak of his career. He was conquering the world. And he was murdered by the Roman Senate. Then, if, when you come to verse 20, this should sound familiar. Because we know when Jesus was born, he had, his parents had to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem because Caesar Augustus had taxed the world. You remember that? In the book of Luke? Well, in verse 20 of Daniel 11, it says, Then shall stand up in his estate, the estate of the king of the north, a razor of taxes in the glory of the kingdom. This is Caesar Augustus, the one who raised taxes. This prophesied that when Jesus would come to this world, there would be a razor of taxes, and when it refers to in the glory of the kingdom. But within few days he shall be destroyed, neither in anger nor in battle. Caesar Augustus was one of... The few kings in here who died peacefully. After that, we have the death of Tiberius Caesar, who came after Caesar Augustus. And it talks about the Prince of the Covenant in verse 22, referring to his death during the time of Tiberius Caesar. Now, I realize I'm going really faster here, but... This is really a repetition of the history. We've already seen Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, pagan Rome, and papal Rome in, this, in Daniel 2, 7, and 8. This is just adding a new dimension and giving you further detail to show you just how accurate this prophecy is. Then in verse 23, it jumps back to the league that the Romans made with the Jews in 161 BC. And then finally in verses 25 through 28, it describes the final battle between the king of the north and the king of the south until we get to the very end of time. And this was when Caesar Augustus fought against Mark Antony and Cleopatra. And probably a brief history story would be useful here. Because Mark Antony used to be, or initially he was in alliance with Caesar Augustus. And in fact, he married Caesar Augustus's sister. So you would think that they would be close. What happened was, Mark Antony went on the king's business from Rome down to Egypt, and he met the beautiful queen, Cleopatra, and he decided that he would rather marry her and rise to be king of Egypt or king of the south and take over the world from Egypt rather than to stay with Rome. And so that's what happened, and it led to a final battle in 31 BC between Caesar Augustus, Mark Antony, and Cleopatra, and Caesar Augustus won that battle. We don't see the king of the south again until Daniel 11, verse 40, at the time of the end. And we'll talk about that more, especially at the end in, in our next presentation. So those, that's a brief summary of the first 30 verses. And so far, we've seen Medo-Persia, Greece, and pagan Rome in the first 30 verses, just as we've seen those kingdoms in the previous chapters. Now I want to show you what Ellen White says about Daniel 11, because once we get to verse 31 onward, it becomes very relevant for our time. That's what Ellen White says. And I've read this quote a few times. Testimonies to Ministers, page 112 and 113. The light that 
that Daniel received from God was given especially for the, these last days. The visions he saw by the banks of the Uli and Hittichel, the great rivers of Shinar, are now in process of fulfillment, and all the events foretold will soon come to pass. Now remember, Daniel had this vision of Daniel 11 while he was on the banks of Hittichel, and in Daniel 8 he was on the banks of Uli, and she's saying that the events foretold in this vision are soon to come to pass. Continuing on, Testimonies, Volume 9, page 14. The world is stirred with the spirit of war. The prophecy of the 11th chapter of Daniel has nearly reached its complete fulfillment. Did you hear that? It's nearly reached its complete fulfillment, which means when it's done, Jesus is coming back. Soon the scenes of trouble spoken of in the prophecies will take place. And when you look at the world around us, it, would, it, doesn't, it shouldn't take much to convince us that much trouble could happen very quickly. I mean, Sunday everything was normal. Monday we wake up and we find out we're under curfew. And if you look at Libya, things have changed very quickly there right now as well. Continuing on. This is probably the most interesting statement Ellen White makes on Daniel 11. This is found in Manuscript Releases, Volume 13, page 394. We have no time to lose. Troublous times are before us. The world is stirred with a spirit of war. Soon the scenes of trouble spoken of in the prophecies will take place. The prophecy in the 11th of Daniel has nearly reached its complete fulfillment. And then here's the key statement. Much of the history that has taken place in fulfillment of this prophecy will be repeated. In the 30th verse, a power is spoken of that shall be grieved and return and have indignation against the Holy Covenant. So shall he do. He shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the Holy Covenant. And then she quotes Daniel 11 verses 31 through 36. And speaking of Daniel 11, 31 to 36, she says, scenes similar to those described in these words will take place. So when she says, much of the history that has taken place in this prophecy will be repeated, and then she says, scenes similar will, will take place, she's talking about the history of verses 30, 31 to 36. And the question is, what does Daniel 11 verses 30 through 36 talk about? Because up through verse 30, what we've seen, we've seen Medo-Persia, then we've seen Greece and the division of Greece into its four divisions, and then into two as it became the king of the north and the king of the south. Then we see pagan Rome take over as the king of the north and completely annihilate the king of the south in 31 BC. And now when we come to verses 30 and 31 and onward, we see a transfer again of who the king of the north is. So I'm going to read verses 30 through 36 as Ellen White quoted them. Let's read these. For the ships of Chittim shall come against him, that's against the king of the north. Therefore shall he be grieved and return and have indignation against the holy covenant. So shall he do. He shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the holy covenant. And now notice verse 31. 
and arms shall stand on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries. But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. And they that understand among the people shall instruct many. Yet they shall fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity and by spoil. How many days? Many days. Now when they shall fall, they shall be holpen with a little help, but many shall cleave to them with flatteries, and some of them of understanding shall fall to try them, and to purge, and to make them white, even to the time of the end, because it is yet for a time appointed, and the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself, and what? And magnify himself above every god, and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished, for that that is determined shall be done. Now when we get to verse 36, and we see that the king of the north shall speak marvelous things against the God of gods and magnify himself above every God, who do you think that's talking about? Based on what we've studied in Daniel so far. It's papal Rome, because in Daniel chapter 7, the little horn, we see in verse 25, he shall speak great words against the Most High, shall wear out the saints of the Most High, think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times in the dividing of time. In Daniel 7, 25, we see the little horn as papal Rome speaking against God and persecuting the saints for a long time. 1260 years. In Daniel chapter 11, we see a new power introduced in verses 30 and 31 that persecutes God's people for many days and speaks against God in heaven. So we are talking about papal Rome again. And verses 30 and 31 describe the transition from pagan Rome to papal Rome as the king of the north. So it's the same sequence of kingdoms, we're just using different terminology. Instead of using a transition from a dreadful beast to a little horn, we're saying the king of the north went from pagan Rome to papal Rome. So, let's continue. What are the key elements of Daniel 11 verses 30 to 36? Because Ellen White says the history, a lot of the history, not every exact detail, but a lot of the history, the big picture of the history of these verses will be repeated just before Jesus comes. First of all, we see that papal Rome formed intelligence with those who forsook the Holy Covenant. That means they formed a political alliance with the kings of the earth. In verse 31, it says, arms shall stand on his part, which means they received military power for assistance. Now, a, a power that is supposed to represent a church, wouldn't, you wouldn't ordinarily think of receiving assistance from the military, right? That, just, that doesn't seem to make sense. But that's exactly what happened on the behalf of papal Rome. In 508, there was a king in France named Clovis who made an agreement with papal Rome to provide military support. And then in 533, Justinian declared the Roman bishop to be the head of all churches. And then the Roman general Belisarius drove out the Ostrogoths who were occupying Rome so that papal Rome could take over. So one of the first key elements in the history that will be repeated is that papal Rome has military assistance stand up on its part. 
takes away the daily again. I didn't mention much about this in chapter 8. I do believe that it's paganism, but anyway. Then it talks about the abomination of desolation in Daniel 11, verse 31, where it says, They shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. This refers to the union of church and state. Abomination of desolation. An abomination is an unlawful uniting of that which should not be united and church and state uniting where the professed people of God unite themselves with the world or with those who do not follow God. That is another way to describe spiritual fornication and it's an abomination and when you have such an abomination of a union of church and state, it leads to persecution or desolation and that's exactly what happened when church and state united under papal Rome as the king of the north. So military power on behalf of the king of the north and union of church and state abomination of desolation these are key things that are going to be repeated then you have the persecution of the saints we see in verse 33 that God's people they were strong in verse 32 but they fell by the sword by flame by captivity and by spoil for many days and those are the four methods that papal Rome used to persecute the saints they would kill people with a sword or they would burn them at the stake they would place them in prison and by spoil means people were told hey if you go out and kill those who are protestants or those who are against the catholic church not only will you receive everlasting life on forever you will receive all of the property of the people that you killed that's what it means spoil you kill them and you get their property. So we see that this prophecy is right on. And when it says for many days, that's the 1260 days that Daniel 7:25 talks about when it says the king of the, or the little horn power would wear out the saints for that period of time, for many days. Continuing on, persecution continues to the time of the end. We see that in verse 35. And we see that Papal Rome, as the king of the north, would prosper till the indignation is accomplished. And again, here's the statement from Ellen White. Much of the history that has taken place in fulfillment of this prophecy will be repeated. So, military power standing up to assist Papal Rome. Uniting of church and state and persecution of the saints. Much of that history is going to be repeated. Scenes similar to those described in these words will take place. So, how does history repeat? Military force of state will support the king of the north or papal Rome. Along with that, a church-state union will be formed, which is known as the abomination of desolation. This is what's going to happen again in the near future, I believe. Then there will be persecution of the saints as church and state unite. But then the king of the north will come to its final end just as it had a temporary ending in verses 36 and 40 that we're going to talk about. So let's now look at Daniel 11 and the time of the end. Daniel 11 and the time of the end. Let's go to verse 40. Daniel chapter 11 verse 40. Because we see that 
papal Rome would persecute the saints to the time of the end in verse 35. We see that it would prosper till this indignation was accomplished. Verses 37 through 39 just talk about how it magnified himself further. And then in verse 40 it says, And at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him. Now, first of all, we've talked about when the time of the end starts, but based on Daniel chapter 11, the time of the end began when the persecution of the saints stopped. And we saw that from Daniel 7.25 that that persecution would last for 1260 years. Therefore, the time of the end begins when the 1260 years ends, and we saw that that happened in 1798, 538 to 1798. We talked about that in Daniel 7 and in Daniel 8. So here in Daniel 11, we get a little bit more information about exactly what happened at the end of the 1260 years that caused papal Rome to stop persecuting the saints for a period of time before that history will be repeated just before Jesus comes. And so here we see, and at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him. Now in Daniel 11 verse 40 when it says shall push at him, the word push can it also actually be translated gore, which means you gore someone, which means that you would give them a deadly wound. If you gore someone, it's with the intent to kill. So it's not just like the king of the south is saying, hey, I'm going to just push the king of the north here a little bit. No, in the original language, it means with the intent to provide a deadly wound. That's what the king of the south is doing. Now what we saw, the king of the south, when we looked at the first 30 verses, was always the southern division of Greece, which was the territory of Egypt, and it was the Ptolemaic dynasty. But that dynasty came to its end in 31 BC. So could it be that Egypt would come back in 1798 at the time of the end to try to deliver a deadly wound to papal Rome? Well, if you look carefully at history and in 1798, what's interesting, when we see what happened in 1798, we see that Berthier, a general of Napoleon, who is pictured on this slide, came into Rome and took Pope Pius VI captive. And at that point, papal Rome no longer had power over the state to command the military and the state to do as it pleased. Yes, they still had the Vatican. Yes, they still were the Catholic Church. But they lost the power over the state. That union of church and state was broken up in 1798. Now, France is not Egypt. That's pretty clear. So how does that work? Well, if you go to Revelation chapter 11, verse 8, and in the interest of time, I'm just going to speed through this. But in Revelation chapter 11, verse 8, it describes a power that rises at the end of the 1260 years of Bible prophecy that we talked about, and it's described spiritually as Sodom and Egypt. Now that's interesting, because we see in Daniel 11 that the king of the south pushes or makes a deadly wound towards the king of the north, and in Revelation 11, we find that a power, an atheistic power, made a push against papal Rome by making a declaration for atheism. 
And it's interesting, in Great Controversy, page 269, Ellen White says um, that the atheism of, of Egypt was reborn in France. Specifically, she refers to the atheistic spirit of Egypt by saying, Pharaoh said, who is Jehovah that I should obey him? Egypt was a godless society, an atheistic society. And at the time of the end, the nation of France rose up and brought back those principles to fight against papal Rome. And it was France that took the Pope captive in 1798, thus giving a deadly wound to the King of the North. Now France did not continue with that power. After France, the King of the South continued as Communist Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. And it's interesting, when we look at history, we look at the Communist Manifesto. Do you know what year the Communist Manifesto was written? And it was written by Karl Marx. Do you know what year it was written? 1844. So, King of the South bringing on the principles of atheism and the Communist Manifesto, which carried those principles forward, which led to the Russian Revolution and the rise of the Soviet Union. That manifesto was written in France, in Paris, in 1844, and it led to the rise of atheism throughout Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. And we see pictured here Lenin and Stalin as well, who carried out that revolution. Then we come down into the 1960s, and some of you may have been alive to remember this. Suddenly overnight, just to show you how things can change suddenly, the communists erected the Berlin Wall that separated Eastern Germany from, or East Germany from West Germany, and it was a symbol of the divide between the West and the East, or between democracy and communism. And at this point in history, when you look at the power of the King of the South, of atheism, of the Soviet Union, you would say, wow, they have a lot of power. Here in Papal Rome's own backyard of Eastern Europe, they can't even get a foothold because communism won't allow the Catholic Church to set up shop, so to speak. That's how powerful the Soviet Union and communism was during that time. But of course, as you know, things change. The first half of Daniel 11 verse 40 talks about this deadly wound, but in the last half of verse 40, which is the last part of scripture that we're going to read in the book of Daniel chapter 11 tonight, this is what we see. And the king of the north shall come against him, that's against the king of the south, like a whirlwind with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships, and he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. So notice, papal Rome as the king of the north received a deadly one, but there's this prediction that sometime after 1798, which by the way, that's getting a lot closer to our time now, is it not? Sometime after 1798, Papal Rome, as the king of the north, is going to make a comeback against the atheistic powers of Europe that gave it a deadly wound. And the way it comes back is with chariots, horsemen, and many ships. So, the question is, what does that mean? Chariots and horsemen. In the Bible, 
in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 15, it says, And when the servant of the man of God was risen early, this is speaking of Elisha and his servant, and gone forth, behold, an host compassed the city both with horses and chariots, and his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? So horses and chariots represents the Syrian army that was surrounding Samaria. Here we see that chariots and horsemen represent military power. Now, do you remember Ellen White said much of the history that we saw in verses 30 to 36 would be repeated. And one of the first things that we saw was the arms stood on the part of the king of the north, where they received military power to assist it. So in other words, in the last half of verse 40, we start to see the history repeating itself. The military power or arms stands on part or on behalf of papal Rome, because papal Rome to this day does not have an army, does it not? They have a few guards at the Vatican, but they don't count for much. They get run over by any military, really. But arms or military power stand on behalf of the king of the north. Not only that, we see that it comes with many ships. What does the Bible say about ships? In 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 9.21 and Proverbs 31.14, we find that it refers to riches and merchandise. So not only... And then in Revelation 18, it talks about those who were made rich by Babylon and they had ships in the sea. So ships represent economic power or economic strength. So the way papal Rome would make a comeback at the end of time against this atheistic power is to have military power and economic power to fight back against the atheistic powers of Europe. So the question is, where are we today? Can we look at this prophecy and identify things that have happened, perhaps even in our lifetime, that represent a fulfillment of the prophecy of the King of the North, Papal Rome, coming back against communism through the assistance of military and economic power? So, Here's where we, are, where we are. 1798, King of the North, Papal Rome receives deadly wound. The next event in Daniel 11, military and economic power giving force to Papal Rome against the King of the South. Have we seen any nation form an alliance with Papal Rome since 1798 to lead to the demise of the King of the South or of communism in Europe? Has that happened? In... February of 1992, Time Magazine wrote an article called Holy Alliance, which described how Ronald Reagan, the President of the United States, and Pope John Paul II conspired together to bring down communist Europe. And the United States, with the force of their military and economic power, assisted Papal Rome politically to gain this victory. The first meeting took place in June of 1982, and it's called one of the great secret alliances of all time. Let me just grab a microphone here. So people didn't even realize that the Pope and the President were conspiring together to try to bring down communism. And I have a slide here that I want to show you. And this represents when Reagan finally went right at communism with the backing of the papacy. This was a very famous occasion standing before the Berlin Wall. But if you seek peace, 
If you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Now, how many of you remember that event in history where Reagan came to the Berlin Wall and said to the leader of the Soviet Union on June 12, 1987, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Do you, any, any of you remember that? S several of you do. That was a significant moment in prophetic history, and sometimes it's not so clear until you're, you are able to look back and see what has happened. But sure enough, just a little over two years later, the Berlin Wall came down, and by 1991, the Soviet Union had collapsed because Papal Room had received assistance through the military and economic power of the United States to bring down communism in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. This tells us now, when we look at Daniel chapter 11, verse 40, that we're not just looking at 1798 at the time of the end, we're actually looking in the very recent past, 1987, 1989, to see how Papal Rome as the king of the north made advances prophetically in the prophecy of Daniel 11. Because the last half of verse 40 began to be fulfilled in the 1980s. This tells us that we are right on the very edge of eternity. We are minutes till midnight. Jesus is about to come. Where are we today? You know, this picture says a lot. Two former and one at the time current presidents, the two President Bushes and Bill Clinton, come to the funeral of John Paul II and kneel before his casket. It's a different day. That would never have happened 50, 60, 70 years ago. President Kennedy, the one who was assassinated, he was a Catholic and he had to keep an arm's length distance from the Pope because he wanted to make sure that church and state were, pro the, the separation of it were properly recognized. Now, the presidents were running to Rome to kneel before the Pope at his funeral. Where are we today? Testimonies, volume 9, page 11. The agencies of evil are combining their forces and consolidating. They are strengthening for the last great crisis. Great changes are soon to take place in our world, and the final movements will be rapid ones. The, and then verse, four, or, sorry, volume 9 of the Testimonies, page 14. The world is stirred with a spirit of war. The prophecy of the 11th chapter of Daniel has nearly reached its complete fulfillment. Soon the scenes of trouble spoken of in the prophecies will take place. And what's fascinating is more has taken place in fulfillment of the prophecy since she wrote that statement 100 years ago. And we are getting closer and closer. And it's interesting, you know, when she says great changes are seen to take place in our world and the final movements will be rapid ones. That's the very same chapter as when she says the prophecy of the 11th of Daniel has nearly reached its complete fulfillment. And what I believe is that when the next step takes place in the fulfillment of this prophecy, when the king of the north enters into the glorious land representing where God's people are today, spiritually speaking, that will represent 
a union of church and state, an abomination of desolation that will usher in the final mo movements that will take place very rapidly. Maranatha, page 68, Christians should be preparing for what is soon to break upon the world as an overwhelming surprise. In this preparation, they should make diligently studying the Word of God and striving to conform their lives to its precepts. So that's why we're here at meetings like this. We are here to study diligently so that we can conform our lives to the precepts in the Scripture so that we will be ready for what is to break upon the world as an overwhelming surprise. And then 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 4 and 6 says, But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. Now is not the time to be sleeping. Jesus is about to come. And you know, this limited state of emergency here in Trinidad, again, is a reminder of just how rapidly things can change. And when we look at the world around us and as we see the fulfillment of the prophecies here in Daniel 11, we realize that we as God's people should be awake, that we need to wake up. And the verse that I quoted at the very beginning, Romans 13, 11, and that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed? The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. And then verse 14, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. In other words, as we see the signs around us, as we see Jesus about to come in the clouds, Paul admonishes us, put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, accept his righteousness by faith and as you do so you will not make provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts in other words you won't say I'm going to be a Christian by declaration but the way I live my life is actually the opposite I'm making provision for the flesh no we see the signs we love Jesus we accept his righteousness by faith and we allow him to transform our lives so when that day comes we will be ready so our next presentation, verses 41 through 45, we are going to see the rapid sequence of events that will take us, and we don't know when it's going to start, it could be very soon, that will take us from the National Sunday Law down to the close of probation and the second coming of Jesus. So you will want to be here, and I believe that's going to be Friday night. So, and we'll start again at the early time. So I'm going to say a brief prayer, and then I'll let the brethren here close the meeting. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have made it clear to us where we are in history prophetically. And as we see this message, may it help us to wake up and to be ready and to be awake so that when Jesus comes, we will be ready to meet him and help us to share this with as many as we can so that we're not going to heaven by ourselves, but we're taking a whole host of friends and neighbors with us. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.